This is episode number 321, Atomic Habits with number one New York Times bestseller, James Clear. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community, and that we get to learn and grow together. True behavior change is really identity change. You know, like once you start to look at yourself in a new way or have a new story for how you describe yourself, you're not even really trying to change your behavior anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already see yourself to be. And so the real goal is not to like run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to read a, you know, read 20 books a year. It's to become a reader. The goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat. It's to become a meditator. And those identities, I'm a runner, I'm a reader, I'm a meditator, I'm an athlete, I'm a leader, I'm whatever, they can be a really meaningful way to change your behavior in the long run. So ultimately, I think this comes back to habits because habits provide repeated evidence for the type of person that you are. Happy New Year, and I am so grateful to be on this journey of personal growth with you. I'm doing something fun and different today. So on October 29th, 2020, episode 220 of my podcast originally aired with James Clear. And as many of you have since read his book, Atomic Habits, I thought that now would be a great time to replay this episode because all of the information in that book and many of the other habit change books is particularly relevant to this time of year when many people are looking at January and the new year as a fresh start to create some resolutions and behavior changes. Personally, I make changes year round, but the things that I'm focusing on right now are digital organization because my laptop has very bad organization. (laughs) I use the search function to find my files, which is not the best way to organize. So I'm going to start working on that. And also, I am going to be working on my mobility a lot this year. And you'll get to hear more about that in a future episode with Ever Athletes, Dr. Matthew Smith. But I'm excited to really be focusing on my shoulders and my posterior chain. So my glutes and my hamstrings and cyclists and runners are notably weaker in those areas. So I'll be excited to see the performance gains and health benefits from doing that. If you're interested in working on setting some goals this year and not only thinking about the goals, but figuring out how you're going to actually execute them and stay on top of them as the motivation of the new year might go away, I'm inviting you to my digital workshop. It's called Galvanize Your Goals. It's on January 14th and it's linked in the show notes. And it's going to be an entire hour where I spend time with you, where we have worksheets and all of the different things that I have learned both as a health coach and from all of the reading that I've done on behavior change to help you create a plan. So go to sonyalooney.com slash goals. If you want to sign up, we would love to see you there. And that is the Galvanize Your Goals workshop on January 14th. It's a Saturday in the afternoon, and I am looking forward to seeing you all there. Okay, so back to James Clear. One of my very favorite quotes from him is, every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. No single instance will transform your beliefs, but as the votes build up, so does the evidence of your new identity. And that quote is actually on my website because it's so powerful. It's a reminder that 
all of our little steps add up. And it's not just one step or one heroic effort or one step in the wrong direction that defines you. And you get to choose by getting back on it as soon as you have a setback or continuing on your path if you are taking those small steps in the direction that you want to go. James Clear is an expert in behavior change, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits, which was on the charts for a very long time, and it sold millions of copies. I first discovered James Clear many years ago when he started publishing articles on his website and sending out a fantastic newsletter that now has well over a million subscribers. The way that he describes things like goal setting, how to be productive, and how to make habits stick is very easily understood and distilled so that we can put it into action. Many people attribute failing to break bad habits or failure to stick to new habits with a lack of willpower, and they think that the problem is them. But as James Clear says, if you're having trouble changing your habits, the problem isn't you. The problem is your system. Bad habits repeat themselves again and again, not because you don't want to change, but because you have the wrong system for change. You do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. And that is why I wanted to do that Galvanize Your Goals workshop for you guys. So make sure that you, again, check that out. So in this podcast, we talk about how to create an environment that makes it easy to make your habits stick. We talked about the two-minute rule, which I've talked about something similar before and the importance of setting the goal of just showing up because a lot of times we'll think about we want to feel a certain way or it needs to look a certain way and all of that decision fatigue stops us from even getting going. So we have to get going in order to feel motivated instead of waiting to feel motivated in order to get going. We also talked about the difference between motion and action, and that is the time spent learning about something or preparing to do something versus the action of actually doing something. And in health coaching, this is called the trans-theoretical model of behavior change. And there's a contemplation, there's a pre-contemplation, a contemplation stage, and there's all of these different stages before you actually get into action. And a lot of us think that we're doing something just by reading about it or thinking about it, but you actually have to do the thing in order to change your behavior, not just read about it. And quite possibly the most powerful idea with habit change is the idea of identity-based habits and how to measure them. James Clear says, your outcomes are a lagging measure of your habits. Your net worth is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your weight is a lagging measure measure of your eating habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning habits. Your clutter is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. You get what you repeat. I've used quotes and ways that he has organized ideas from the behavior change research in my speeches, my articles, and books, because no one can create clarity like he can. This episode is a game changer, and that's why I wanted to republish it this year, because it really brought a lot of value to me, and a lot of people loved it. And speaking of game changers, one of our new podcast partners is Prevenex. You might have heard the episode that I recorded with David Block all about these huge life changes that he made in his career and a realization as a research analyst that the supplement industry has a lot of problems, and he created his own supplement company backed by the years of experience going into these factories and learning all about the different companies and the supplement industry to make pharmaceutical grade vitamins and also to use the highest quality types of minerals and vitamins in their multivitamin and beyond. And there are many different forms of a vitamin or mineral that you can get and some of them are better than others. I have a lot of skepticism when it comes to vitamins because it is not a regulated field. And I love that there is so much testing that goes into Prevenix and I trust their products and it's been a game changer to switch and my entire family has switched over. 
A great place to start is with their multivitamin and you should feel the difference whenever you switch over. And something else, if you wanted to add it in during this time of year especially, is their Immune Health Plus. The formulation has vitamin C, D, calcium, and zinc. It also has an organic mushroom blend, an elderberry fruit extract. And it's nice to know that that is going to help us stay healthier so we can keep training and keep showing up as our best selves. So if you want to try Prevenex for yourself or your family, they are offering 15% off your first order and you use the code SONYA15, that is S-O-N-Y-15 at Prevenex.com. And again, that's 15% off your first order at Prevenex.com. And I'm so excited for you to check these out. So back to Teams Clear, some topics that we talked about in the podcast are the four laws of behavior change, identity-based habits, the compound effect of habits, the two-minute rule, and don't miss twice. And the never miss twice has been something that I've used a lot in my personal life. If you love habit change, productivity, mindset, motivation, make sure that you subscribe to my weekly newsletter at sonyalooney.com newsletter, where I regularly write and research the topics of behavior change, high performance, and well-being. And last, before we get into this episode, I noticed there's been an uptick in people registering for my Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy, where it's all about the performance mindset so that you can be your best on race day. So if you want to work on your mental toughness as an athlete, make sure you go to sonyalooney.com and check out the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy and join a bunch of other people in this journey to better ourselves. All right, here's James Clear. James Clear, one of my heroes. Welcome to the show. Hi, great to talk to you. I've been following your work for quite some time. I don't know exactly what year, maybe since 2011, 2012, but I was on your email list and I was always really inspired by how you communicate ideas. Thank you. Yeah, I started writing at jamesclear.com in November of 2012. So you're uh, you're one of the um, originals. Thank Dang, you. Dang, OG. <laughs> and you wrote a book called atomic habits that came out is it it's been out for a couple years now right october 2018 so uh next month will be two years exactly yeah and it's an amazing book and i can personally say that i've read it several times and what made you decide to switch from writing these in-depth incredible articles on jamesclear.com to writing a book well I think there's probably a bigger principle hidden in there in here for anything, not just writing, but, you know, fitness or developing any skill, really, which is early on, I felt like I needed to write articles to kind of hone my skills. There's a lot of stuff that happens when you put in your reps early, like you get better at the skill itself, you discover your voice, you kind of test different ideas and figure out like what you like and what you like writing about. I needed to sort of discover all of that and figure out what topics interested me, but also interested readers because, you know, not everything I wanted to write about people wanted to hear my take on. So there's a lot of that trial and error that's happening. There's a lot of like skill development that's happening. So I was doing that for the first three years or so. And as the audience started to grow and I started to find my footing as an author a little bit more, I started to write more about habits and strategy and decision making and all the stuff that I kind of write about now. And I never started with the intention of being an author. I just sort of gradually found myself enjoying writing more and more. And then at some point, a few agents reached out and were like, hey, have you thought about writing a book? Or a publisher would send me an email every now and then and say, you know, if you're ever interested in making this a book, let us know. So I was starting to hear it from different people. And once I heard it from maybe five or six people, I was like, okay, now maybe I should think about this seriously. Like maybe this is the next step. 
So it happened gradually. And it's funny because I thought the transition from one to the other would be smoother than it was. But really, the first year of writing Atomic Habits was just me figuring out like how to put everything in order, how to develop the outline. Because writing a big, long book where you go from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three is much different than writing like fragmented individual articles. So there are a variety of learning curves with that, too. But um, it was very much a gradual evolution. I love that you said you did the reps early, and that's in your book talking about doing the reps in order to create a habit. And also you talked about becoming a writer and becoming a writer is part of an identity, but writing is how Mm. you become a writer. Well, we'll just go into the book. Can we talk about the four laws of behavior change? And then eventually we'll get into the reps and the identity based habits. Sure. So I think roughly, if you're just thinking about from a high level, if you want a good habit to stick, you sort of need about four things kind of working in your favor. And you don't always have to have all four, but the more that you have, the more likely it is that a good habit will stick or that you can get a bad habit to break. So roughly speaking, those four things, which I call the four laws of behavior change, are you want to make it obvious. You want your good habits to be obvious, available, visible, easy to see, easy to get your attention The easier it is to see, the easier it is for you to notice, uh, the more likely you are to start the habit. The second law is to make it attractive. So the more attractive or appealing or desirable a habit is, the more likely you are to feel motivated to do it. The third law is to make it easy. So the easier, more convenient, frictionless, simple a habit is, the more likely it is to occur. And then the fourth and final law is that you want to make it satisfying. So the more satisfying or enjoyable a habit is, the more likely it is to stick in the long run. And so make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. Those four laws, they connect to this kind of four-step process that I have for describing a habit, which has been utilized by many people before they kind of describe these different stages. And it's sort of like the scientific explanation for how a habit works, which is You go through these four steps of there's some kind of cue, which is the thing that makes it obvious to you or that you notice. There's some type of craving, which is a prediction that your brain makes. And then there's the response and then the reward. And so cue, craving, response, reward, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. I do want to mention just one other thing, which is those four laws describe how to get a good habit to stick. If you want to break a bad habit, then you just invert those four. So rather than making it obvious, you want to make it invisible. Unsubscribe from emails or, you know, like reduce the odds that you're going to see the cue. Rather than making it attractive, make it unattractive. Rather than making it uh, easy, make it difficult. Rather than making it satisfying, make it unsatisfying. So obviously the book covers that in a lot more detail and I can give specific examples on each one. But those are kind of the four laws of behavior change and this kind of high level framework for how to troubleshoot your habits or approach them to get them to stick. Yeah. And something that I had never heard before that you wrote about in your book is creating habits based on an identity. Can you talk about that? So a lot of the time when we talk about habits, we talk about the habits as being the pathway to external results. You know, it'll help you lose weight or make more money or be more productive or, you know, win a championship or whatever. And it's true. Habits can help you do all of those things, which is great. But I think the real reason that habits matter is not external, but internal. They give you evidence that shifts the narrative that you have about yourself. They help you change your story or believe something new about yourself. And this is what I refer to as identity-based habits. And the core idea is that true behavior change is really identity change. 
once you start to look at yourself in a new way or have a new story for how you describe yourself, you're not even really trying to change your behavior anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already see yourself to be. So the real goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to read 20 books a year. It's to become a reader. The goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat. It's to become a meditator. And those identities, I'm a runner, I'm a reader, I'm a meditator, I'm an athlete, I'm a leader, I'm whatever, they can be a really meaningful way to change your behavior in the long run. So ultimately, I think this comes back to habits because habits provide repeated evidence for the type of person that you are. And I think we could even say that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so no, doing one workout does not make you a champion, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And doing things once or twice probably doesn't change your mind about it. But if you keep showing up and casting votes, you build up this body of evidence. And at some point, the weight on the scales, so to speak, like shifts in your favor. You get enough votes piled up that you start to think, yeah, actually, this is part of who I am. And that, I think, is the real long-term reason why habits are so meaningful, is that they start to shape the way that you look at yourself. You gave an example about an ice cube melting in a room and how the ice cube can stay an ice cube until it gets to 32 degrees and then it has a state change. And I thought that that was a really great example of what it feels like to work towards something because it takes time in order to have a state change. Have you experimented with that on your end? Like, how did you come up with that idea of thinking of the ice cube that way? Yeah, I don't remember where I first uh, came up with the ice cube metaphor, but I do remember coming across a quote when I was working on the book that it hangs inside the locker room for the San Antonio Spurs. And I think about that a lot. And it kind of echoes the the sentiment that you're bringing up here, which is that it says, you know, whenever I feel like giving up, I think about the stone cutter who takes his hammer and bangs on the rock 100 times without it splitting in two. And then at the 101st blow, it cracks open. And I know that it wasn't the 101st that did it, but all the 100 that came before. And that's exactly how your habits work. You know, the state change that you're referencing a lot of the time, people work on habits for a month or three months, and they don't have the results they want, and they feel like giving up. But that work is not being wasted. It's just being stored. You know, you're kind of building up this potential energy to reach that next stake change. And so there's a little bit of trust that's required. There's a little bit of confidence and perseverance that's required. But it's very much a part of the process of habits leading to change. And this is I think a hallmark of any compounding process, which is that the greatest returns are delayed. You know, the very beginning of any compounding curve, it's basically flat. You got to keep working for a while before you start to get to that hockey stick curve and it takes off. And a lot of state changes, a lot of life changes are like that. They require you to show up and put work in for months or even years before you break through to the next level. And what we're really getting at there is that delayed gratification is a central part of, of building habits. And uh, I think that's what those quotes get at. I think that's what the ice cube gets at. And it's, it's definitely a core part of the process. I love the idea of the compound effect. And that's something that I practice every day in my life is it's about getting 1% better. And a lot of times, like the way that we consume information now, things are about going big or, you know, this amazing thing happened. But what you don't see 
is all the years and months and, and time that went into making that big thing happen. And it only happens by doing the 1% better. Yeah, the results of success are often highly visible and easy to see, but the process behind success is often invisible and like hidden from view. And there's also this other thing that happens, which is that, you know, whether it's the traditional news cycle or social media, we tend to only talk about things once the result is there. Like, you'll never see a story that says something like, you know, a woman eats chicken and salad for lunch today. Like, it's only a story when it's like, woman has lost 100 pounds, you know, so we only talk about the Broadway show once it's a hit, not when it's in the middle of being written. We only talk about the, you know, athletes performance after they won the championship, not, you know, in the off season when they're training. And so for that reason, I think we tend to undervalue systems and process and habits. And um, the funny thing, the ironic thing is that we also badly want our results to change. You know, like we also badly want these better outcomes, but the results are not really the thing that needs to change. It's actually the system behind the results is the process or the habits that precede them that need to shift. And if you can fix the inputs, the outputs will often fix themselves. So a focus on habits is very much um, connected to, to that kind of thinking and philosophy. Yeah. And I think in our dialogue, like rewarding hard work, like Carol Dweck's fix versus growth mindset with fixed mindset, we're always rewarding the outcome of the thing. Oh, you're so talented. Oh, you're so smart. And it's kind of a, a running joke. Like I'm a professional cyclist and people will be like, oh, I barely trained at all for that race. And you know that they were out training really, really hard. And it's this idea of I'm talented, therefore I didn't have to work hard. But really, if we can show that hard work in it of itself is of merit and almost even better than the thing that you get from the hard work, I think that that makes the habits, the process more appealing for us to want to do. For sure. Yeah. Praise the effort rather than the outcome. I think that's definitely uh, central to this kind of idea as well. And the people who, again, like kind of one of those little ironic twists, the people who get to enjoy the rewards are often the people who actually enjoy the process. Like it's the people who like training the most that often cross the finish line first. And it's the people who enjoy reading the most who look like they're the smartest ones and, and so on. It's like the falling in love with the process leads to the outcome eventually. But you also talked about, it was at the end of the book, something about like the people that can endure the pain the easiest or, or who can endure the pain the longest of doing the, the habit also are the ones who are the most successful. There's this thing where like people often ask, you know, what are your strengths? What do you love to do? What are you passionate about? But I think maybe an alternative angle, a, a different line of attack to answering that question is what is the work that hurts you less than it hurts most people? You know, like what is the suffering that you can handle more than most people seem to handle? Or if we rephrase it a little bit differently, we would say what seems like suffering to most people, but doesn't actually feel like that to you. And that's actually what you're very well equipped to do because everything in life requires effort, requires trade-offs, requires energy and attention and commitment. And if those commitments don't really feel that hard to you, if they don't feel doesn't mean you're not working hard. It just means that you seem to be able to handle it better than most people do. That's a real long-term advantage because if it doesn't feel like suffering as much to you, then you can probably work harder on it for longer than most people will. Most people will quit before you will. And so that I think is probably where you'll end up finding your strength, which is wherever you have the ability to suffer. 
Tracking habits is something that you've talked about a lot and has a lot of effective results, but there's something that I really liked that you mentioned was about when the measurement itself becomes the target, it ceases to become a good measure. Mm. And we were already kind of alluding to that earlier. Women loses 100 pounds or like looking at only at race results or, you know, those types of things. And it's really easy to get stuck looking at these outcomes. How many social media followers do I have? How many wins? How much money do I make? So how can people not get stuck? Because you get you get rewarded for that, like publicly, whenever you start getting these outcomes. So how can you stay focused on the habits every day that guide you to the big picture instead of just getting the thing? Yeah, it's a great point. And I think it's actually like a more nuanced point than you might think, because measurement is very important. It can be really helpful. Like when I track my workouts, I get stronger. When I measure how much I eat, like I get leaner. Like there's measurement can be very valuable in that sense. But the problem, as you mentioned, is when the measure becomes the target, when you start to forget that all of these measurements are actually a proxy for what you're really trying to achieve. They're just way, they're little guidelines that try to keep you moving directionally in the correct way, rather than, you know, it becoming all about that. It's like students, you know, forgetting that it, this is actually about learning. It's not just about getting a good test score. And there, I was guilty of that. Like all I was trying to optimize for were good test scores. Me I didn't too. really care actually if I learned anything, you know, like I just, all I wanted was the A. And that becomes a problem in a lot of different areas of life. That's just school is just one example of it. And so we need to make sure that measurements are guiding the process, but not necessarily becoming the sole target. And so for me, what I what I find a lot of the things that you just mentioned, like the number on the scale or the race times or whatever, those are ultimate outcomes. I find it more helpful to measure like intermediate outcomes or measuring the process. So you know, measuring the number of practice sessions or the number of reps, measuring the amount of words that you write every day or the number of articles you publish each week, like things that are moving you in that proper direction by measuring the process rather than getting obsessed with the number of that's the final outcome. And, uh, you know, that's a delicate dance and it's different for each thing. And it's different for each person, depending on what you're optimizing for. But measurement can be both useful and it can be dangerous. Yeah, I think it kind of depends on your personality too. Like there's the people that are sort of the achiever types where they're just like pushing, pushing, pushing. Let me just, let me overtrain. Let me over research. Let me overdo it. And then there's seems to be the other camp where the people that have a difficult time just getting the momentum to get going. Talking about the people who have difficulty getting going. And I, I think that all of us have different aspects of that in our life. Like for some of us, it's easy to get started in one area, but really hard in another area. And even like myself, I was pregnant last year and I was committed to riding my bike six days a week as long as I possibly could. And there was lots of days that I didn't want to get off the couch and showing up was my goal. Instead of training session for two hours or like looking back at all the things I had done previously as an athlete, my goal was just to show up. And if I didn't feel good after a certain amount of time, I would just turn around and go home. And you wrote about the two minute rule in your book, which I think is awesome and really helpful. So I'd love for you to talk about the two minute rule. Yeah. Well, what you're kind of mentioning there, I think this is something a lot of people feel. We feel very all or nothing about our habits a lot of the time. It's like, well, if I can't do the full thing, then we're like, why even bother? And um, it's almost always better to do less than you had hoped than to do nothing at all. But it can be hard to get yourself to feel that way, particularly if you're an ambitious person. You're like, oh, I want to either do it 100 or zero, you know, 
<laughs> so the two minute rule, what it does is it encourages you to say, take whatever habit you're trying to build, read 30 books a year, you know, run a marathon, do yoga four days a week, whatever it is. And you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes when I mention that people resist it a little bit because they're like, okay, you know, if this is some kind of mental trick and I know it's a trick, like why would I fall for it basically? But I have this reader, his name's Mitch, and uh, I mentioned him in Atomic Habits. He lost over 100 pounds. It's been over a decade now. He's kept it off. And um, when he first went to the gym, he had this rule where for the first six weeks, he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. And it sounds kind of ridiculous, right? It's like he got in the car, drove to the gym, got out, did half an exercise, got back in the car, drove home. You're like, this is obviously not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But if you step back, what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up, right? Like he was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And I think that's a much deeper truth about habits that often gets overlooked, which is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. Right. Like if you haven't made it the standard in your life, there's nothing to optimize. It's just a theory. And so you really need to focus on mastering the art of showing up. And I, I like that quote from Ed Lattimore, which is the heaviest weight at the gym is the front door. And I think that it really is the case a lot of the time. It's like that actually is the biggest rep is just stepping inside and getting started. So the two minute rule sort of helps you overcome that tendency for perfectionism or that tendency to be all or nothing and make sure that you're getting some reps in. The other thing that this does is it ties back to what we were previously talking about with identity-based habits, which is, you know, it may only have been five minutes at the gym, but it still cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And that's really helpful both in the beginning and also when dealing with a big change, like you talking about the pregnancy, you know, maybe your workouts weren't as long or as arduous or as crazy as they used to be, but they, you were still casting votes for that being a really meaningful part of your identity in some ways those votes may have been even more meaningful than at a different stage in your life because it was like, it was suboptimal. The circumstances were not ideal and I still got out there. And I think that in the long run counts for a lot and really helps to affirm that that's a, an important part of your identity and what you want to stand for. Yeah. And I think, you know, using the easy example of training or working out, like it doesn't matter who you are. You can be a world champion, elite athlete, and you could be someone like your friend just getting started. Everyone has days where you don't feel like getting started, even if you love the thing, even if the thing is your passion and just showing up and getting started and accepting that it's not going to I'm not going to be killing it every day. And in fact, I shouldn't expect to be killing it every day because that's not realistic either. It's just it's really powerful whenever you start casting those votes. For sure. So I like that you talked about the guy getting in the car and driving to the gym. That was the thing that helped him create a habit because that was the decisive moment whenever he actually got started. And sometimes we think about the habit itself as the decisive moment. And you talk about decisive moments in your book. Can you give a few more examples? So I like to think about these. Well, first, let me just step back. The, one of the core problems with building habits is that a habit technically is a behavior that's more or less automatic, something you can do mindlessly, brushing your teeth, tying your shoes, whatever. But a lot of the things that we want to do when we use the word habit, like I want to get in the habit of writing four days a week, or I want to get in the habit of meditating, or want to get in the habit of working out consistently. I know what you mean when you use the word like that, right? You mean I want it to be a regular practice, but actually in reality, it's not going to be mindless the way that brushing your teeth or tying your shoes is. 
So you have to focus carefully. Like my point is that many of the things that matter most to us also require our concentration. And yet we want to make those habitual. So what do we do? And I think this decisive moment piece that you just brought up is the answer to that. The idea is to focus on the decisive moment, focus on the lead domino, the first action, and make that mindless, make that easy. And that will often determine how you spend the next chunk of time. So for example, if we take the gym, there's a moment like 5.15 or so. My wife gets done from work and either we change into our workout clothes and we go to the gym or we sit on the couch and watch The Office and order Indian food. And like both of those are good nights, but they're very different nights. And the whole thing that determines it is do we change into our workout clothes or not? If we change clothes, that's the decisive moment. Like the whole, the next two hours are already figured out. We'll get in the car, we'll go to the gym, we'll do the workout. Like it's already done at that point. And so I think the question to ask yourself is, one, what are the most important actions for me? Like, what are the things that make up my ideal day or really move the needle in whatever's important to me? And then two, what is the decisive moment that precedes that? What is the lead domino? And can I make that habitual? So rather than worrying about the whole workout, can I make it a habit that I always change into my workout clothes at the end of the workday? Because that will prime you and set you up for that next chunk of time to fall into place. I think that's such an awesome point and such great advice because whenever we think about new behavior, we never think about that first small step that actually is a really big step. Well, a lot of those choices, they seem really small, but what they do is they end up setting, one way to think about it is they set the menu of choices that you have to make in the next moment. So for example, let's say that you're standing in line, you're waiting for like 10 minutes and you pull out your phone. Well, you actually have a variety of choices you could make in that moment. You could play a video game, you could check your email, you could browse social media, you could read an article. But that menu, those choices that I just listed, it was all set with the habit of pulling out your phone. So it's actually that uh, decisive moment of checking your phone that determines what's available to you. And so the same thing is true for, you know, all this other stuff, the decisive moment of, you know, putting tying my running shoes yeah, I, I could sit on the couch and watch TV with my running shoes on. But once it's on, it's kind of like, well, now I sort of have a different menu of options in my mind. I'm thinking more about going for the run and getting out and moving and so on. So there's sort of a, a momentum that follows it. There's like uh, it kind of restricts or sets the menu of choices that you have available. All of that is is shaped by the action that precedes it. And so trying to master that is often a good place to start. Yeah. And I think that also goes along with one of your laws of make it easy. If your shoes are on, it's easier to get out the door and get moving. If your shoes are in a closet somewhere and you can't find the other one, maybe the dog moved it. Like you're not going to be putting those running shoes on. I even have readers who will go to sleep in their running clothes so that all they have to do is wake up and just like slide their feet in the shoes and then they can step out the door. You mentioned momentum and momentum tends to be like we think of momentum as a positive momentum, but we can also have momentum that slows us down. So say you didn't put your workout clothes on and you did sit on the couch and watch Indian food. And there are some days where you actually need the rest and you need to do that. But how do you make sure that that doesn't become the new habit? Yeah, that I mean, the way you phrase that, I think is good, because I feel like we all have experienced this, which is that it's rarely the first mistake that ruins you. You know, it's like the spiral of repeated mistakes that follows. It's letting slipping up become a new habit. That's often the problem in the long run. So the phrase or the philosophy that I like to keep in mind is never miss twice. 
you know, if you are following a diet for eight or nine days and then the 10th day you binge eat a pizza, well, I wish that hadn't happened, but never miss twice. So let's make sure the next meal is a healthy one. Or if you always work out on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and something happens and you miss your Friday session, wish that hadn't, hadn't happened, but never miss twice. Let's make sure we get in there on Monday. And the more that you can do that, the more that you realize in the long run, those mistakes are just kind of blips on the radar. And at the end of the year, it doesn't really matter that much. But that's only true if you never miss twice. And I think this is a quality that as time goes on, I see it more and more in top performers, which is that, you know, people at the top of their game or the top of their industry, they make mistakes like everybody else. Nobody is perfect, but they're very good at rectifying those mistakes and getting back on track quickly. They're really good at turning the ship around and getting right back to where they were before. And everybody else kind of lets that spiral into a different pattern or a larger problem. So correcting things quickly is definitely a big part of getting habits to stick in the long run. Yeah, and something that I've been doing, too, is I think, how is my future self going to feel? And this is probably the identity piece, but how's the future part of me going to feel whenever I look back and see that I skipped that thing that I committed to doing? And mm. that's been a powerful way whenever all the other things aren't working, I think I don't want to feel disappointed in myself and that I'm not the person I said I was. That's powerful that you can do that. Anytime you can sort of time travel in your head and go forward and think about, you know, what would me in a year want? What would me in 10 years want? It often enables you to make better choices in the moment. It can be hard sometimes for people to remember to do that. But the more that you can press fast forward on those consequences and see how that would play out, the more you're making choices for future you uh, rather than present you, which usually pays off in the long run. So let's talk about breaking bad habits. I think that there are some really great examples out there of making it harder and making it less attractive. What are some of the most common things people have asked you? Like, I have this bad habit. I want to break it. And can we use that as an example? Yeah, there are all kinds of, you know, stuff from watching too much TV to playing too many video games to biting their nails to not working out consistently to sleeping in too much. You know, like there's all sorts of, of bad habits that people deal with that are fairly common. I will say usually when I talk about breaking a bad habit, I think there are kind of two good places to intervene to start. So the first one, and I'll, I'll just use a couple of personal examples as I talk through these. It can be surprising how much you can reduce a bad habit simply by making it less visible or making it less obvious. So this is the inversion of the first law of behavior change. Rather than making it obvious, you want to make it invisible. So let's take one example. I'm like pretty much everybody else. If I have my cell phone next to me, I'll check it every three minutes just because it's right there. But I have a home office, and so I have this new rule. Well, I've been following it for about a year or two now, where I try to keep my phone in another room until lunch each day. and. It doesn't work for every job, but it works for me. And what's what's interesting is that it's always like 30 seconds away. It's never far, but I never go get it. And so what I always wonder is like, well, did I want it or not? You know, like in one sense, I wanted it bad enough to check it every three minutes when it was next to me. But in another sense, I never wanted it so bad that I would work 30 seconds to go get it. And it's surprising how many habits are like this, you know, like, you feel like you're spending too much money on electronics. Well, unsubscribe from the tech review channels on YouTube and from these unboxing videos and all this other stuff you're watching. Surprisingly, the spending might you know reduce itself. Or 
you're trying to follow a diet, but you keep snacking. Well, don't follow food bloggers on Instagram. Like you're constantly triggering yourself to do the thing you're trying to avoid. So by reducing exposure to the queue, whether it's something physical, like the phone sitting on my desk or something digital, like who you follow online, that can help reduce the habit and the frequency with which you do it because you just don't think about it. So I often recommend starting there, even though it doesn't work for every habit, because it's so simple and so fast that you might as well just do it right away and try to set your environment up to be more beneficial. The second place that I think is a good place to look is the third law. So rather than making it easy, you want to make it difficult. And this comes down to increasing friction, to adding steps between you and the desired behavior. So take TV, for example. A lot of people feel like they watch too much television or play too many video games. but Walk into any living room in America, like where do all the couches and chairs face? You know, it's like, what is this room designed to get you to do? And I'm not saying you have to rearrange your entire house, right? But like, there's a spectrum of choices. You could take the TV, put it inside a wall unit or a cabinet so that you're less likely to see it. You could take the remote control and put it inside a drawer and put a book in its place. You could take the chair that you usually sit in and turn it away from the TV, have it face like an end table with a book on it. And individually, none of those choices are going to radically transform your life. But you can imagine that if you make a dozen or two dozen or 50 choices like that, suddenly the good habit is now the obvious choice, right? The good habit is now the path of least resistance. And often we follow the path of least resistance. So the more that you can optimize your environment to make bad habits harder and higher friction and good habits easier and lower friction, the more you'll find yourself sliding into more productive behaviors. I'm just smiling to myself because there's been a few things that I'll share with people that I've done with the TV. We didn't own a TV until maybe a year ago, but we got tired of watching Netflix like scrunched over on the TV or on the couch watching it on our laptop. So we thought, okay, we'll get a TV, but we don't want it to be the focal point of the room. So we bought one of those like presentation things. So it's like, it's basically a TV on wheels. So we actually wheel, and we noticed that if we let, and we said, we don't want the TV in the middle of the living room ever. But the TV kept sitting there because it took energy to wheel the TV away. But we've actually started unplugging the TV and wheeling it. So it's just the front isn't facing us. So in order to watch Netflix, you have to wheel the TV back into the center of the living room and plug it back in. And most of the time, that's enough of a deterrent that we don't do it. And another example of something is I know lots of people listening to this podcast love beer and I love beer as well. And whenever the beer is cold and in the fridge, it's really easy to just open the fridge and drink one. So we actually have a rule in our house where there is no cold beer in the fridge. We keep the beer in a cabinet. And in some cases, we have some of the beer locked or or some of the stuff like locked in the basement where you have to actually get a key out, open the door and go down the stairs, get the warm beer, bring it back up and put it in the fridge or freezer and wait however long it takes. And that has helped really make you put some thought into, do I actually want this beer Do I want it bad enough where I'll wait 20 minutes? Or is this just some habitual, bad habitual thing that I'm doing that I don't want to be doing and I'm making it a temptation when it's right in front of my face every single time I open the fridge? It's remarkable how much that can matter. I I want to make two points here. One is those are great examples of of increasing friction. And, uh, you know, this isn't going to solve if you're actually struggling with like being an alcoholic or something like it's not going to solve an actual addiction. But most people are not dealing with that with most of their bad habits. And it's surprising how useful stuff like this can be. And then the second one is it's also in the long run, it sounds like you're already kind of at this point. It's not really like in the beginning, it feels kind of like a trick that you're trying to play on yourself or something or like you're trying to intentionally make it difficult or whatever. 
jump through hoops. But what ends up happening is it just becomes the default. The default is when you buy beer, you store it in this locked room downstairs. And that's just kind of where, where beer is. And so it's not like you're doing it to try to get it away from yourself. It's just that's the default for where we keep it. And because that's the default, it ends up becoming harder to get to and higher friction over time. And it just becomes more, more normal. It also is surprising. <laughs> is it, It's like it's surprising that it can make such a difference that like, well, you might watch Netflix for an hour, but the fact that you would have to turn the projector around is too big of a hassle. So you're like, oh, I'm not going to bother. Yeah, I like that because it just really makes you only do something if you truly, truly want it. Or like with food, if I want to eat like something that's a treat, I make myself eat something healthy first. And then I can decide if I still want the treat because with these cravings mm. and these dopamine hits that we get when our body says, yeah, you want that, get the thing. And like the anticipation of getting the thing, you want to actually make sure you want the thing for like for real, instead of just doing it because it's there. You know, I think one of the most interesting examples I've had in my personal life is that I was traveling, I was in Milwaukee and I was with some family and we wanted to get pizza. And when we ordered the pizza, when we made the call, I was starving. I was like, yes, this sounds great. But in between getting it placed and waiting for it to be delivered, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do some push-ups. And I don't know. I did three sets or five sets or something. It wasn't some huge workout. And I did those. And after I got done, I was like, actually, I'm not even really that hungry right now. And what I realized was that actually I didn't want pizza. What I wanted was to change my state. And I think a lot of the time, the things that we crave, whether it's you know some kind of snack or watching TV or drinking a beer or whatever... What we really want is to feel differently. We really want to change our state. And so by substituting something else and by making the default, you know, bad habit a little higher friction, you just you find a different way to change your state. And as long as you feel differently, as long as you find a way to feel better, you don't actually need it to come through that vehicle, through a can of beer or through a episode on Netflix or something like that. It can come however you want, but you're looking for some kind of emotional change. So a lot of this, a lot of the process of breaking bad habits or finding substitutes is just finding a different way to get yourself to feel the way you want to, finding a healthier alternative that can help you change your state. There's some interesting research out there about willpower and like Kelly McGonigal's book, The Willpower Instinct. But what if people say to you like, oh, like I'm trying to change this habit. I'm trying to track everything. I'm trying to do all the things, but I just don't have the willpower. How does that play into motivation? Well, I mean, willpower is a really important quality in life, so I don't want to act like it doesn't matter. But my default is always to say, let's focus on the environment first. So structure determines behavior. And what I mean by that is that the structure of the spaces around you, the places you work, the things that are on your desk, the things that are on your kitchen counter, those determine what actions you take. Like when you go back to your house or your apartment, you walk in through the door. You don't climb in through the window. Because that's what the structure determines, right? It shapes the, the action that you take. And so a lot of people feel like they don't have willpower, but usually it's one of two other things that are the problem. So the first problem is a lot of people think they lack motivation when what they really lack is clarity. So they wake up and think, oh, I hope I feel motivated to work out today, or I hope I feel motivated to write today or whatever. Whereas like if I look at my schedule on, you know, if it's Monday at 5 p.m., I, that's just when I work out. I'm not deciding to work out. That's just like when it happens. I'm not hoping I'll feel motivated to do it. It's just, it's already decided. It already has a space to live. So because I have that clarity around what I'm doing and where I'm doing it and when I'm doing it, 
it's much easier to find the motivation because it's already been determined ahead of time. So getting clear about what you want and when and where a habit will live in your routine, uh, in your schedule, I think helps a lot. So that's the first thing. People think they lack motivation or willpower, but actually they lack clarity. And then the second thing is people think they lack willpower, but actually they're in an environment where they're trying to swim upstream. And trying to swim upstream, in the long run, your environment will always win. You know, like I can walk into the kitchen and see a plate of cookies and maybe I'll resist them the first time I go in or the third time I go in or the eighth time I'll go in. But at some point, I'm going to eat them. And so asking yourself to do that, it does not mean that you are a failure. It doesn't mean that your willpower is lacking. It just means that your environment is suboptimal. And so trying to design a better environment, designing an environment that doesn't require willpower or doesn't require like a Herculean effort to do the right thing, that I think is a much more fruitful place to focus. Design a system that serves you and that makes the good action easy. And you'll find that your willpower probably increases overnight. And is the answer the same if I say, what about grit and determination and not quitting? Because those are kind of different than getting started. Well, you know, so the thing is grit, and this is why I said willpower, grit, perseverance, determination, take whatever discipline, whatever, you know, variant of the word you want. They're very important qualities in life. But here's the thing. Life is going to be hard regardless, right? Like there's going to be all kinds of challenges. There's going to be all types of battles. There's going to be competition. There's going to be difficulty, whether you try to make it easy or not. The idea that you like wouldn't want to optimize your environment because that somehow would mean you don't need to be gritty and don't need to have determination. It doesn't add up to me. Like I think in reality, you want both. You want to design the most optimal environment possible for you to thrive and perform at the highest level. And then you want to flip on the switch mentally and, you know, become determined and gritty and persevere and have an incredible work ethic. So it's it's not either or it's both and. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of habits can be intrinsically motivated or how we measure the habits can be intrinsically motivated. Like if you have something on your phone and it's just you clicking the check or like crossing the calendar, that's intrinsic motivation where you're accountable to yourself. But some people, and I'm referencing Gretchen Rubin's The Four Tendencies book about how some people need extrinsic motivation and people holding them accountable, whereas other people need more to hold themselves accountable. Does this type of framework work for people that need somebody else to hold them accountable? Because when you're the one just checking every single day that you did it, and nobody else is there saying, hey, you didn't do this, it might not work for other people. Yeah, I think the broad overarching idea that you need to be willing to experiment and find out what works for you and maybe try a little bit things that seem to be more intrinsic and some things that are more extrinsic and figure out what works in your case. This essentially a broad philosophy of experimentation and a willingness to have some trial and error. Look, that's going to be essential for anybody building any habit. Like you cannot just read about a theory and then somehow make it work. Like at some point you have to try it. And that requires some level of willingness to experiment and figure out how to fit it into your own life. So in that sense, yes, of course, everybody's going to have their own little idiosyncrasies and own tendencies and so on. The dividing motivation into intrinsic and extrinsic, I think is my thinking has evolved on this to the point where now what I would say is we divide them so that we can discuss them cleanly. But in reality, there isn't actually a division between intrinsic and extrinsic. 
perhaps there are some things that are more intrinsic and some things that are less intrinsic. All there's a blending. So if you if you ask yourself why am I intrinsically motivated to do a lot of these things, and you keep asking why, what you often end up getting to is the reason I'm intrinsically motivated is because I think it will help me with something extrinsic. It will help people view me better, or it will help me achieve something more, or whatever. It will give me higher social standing. And so this is even further true because if you ultimately get down to say well, I'm just doing it because it makes me feel good. And then you say, okay, that seems very intrinsic, but why does it make you feel good? And again, it often becomes because, well, I look better in other people's eyes or whatever. So the point that I'm getting to is that humans are a social species and we have evolved and learned and connected with other people for thousands, millions of years. And so there's a deep connection between what you want for yourself and what others think of you and what you think of them and how we all work together and connect and collaborate. So I think my ultimate punchline to this is that do what works for you, whether it's intrinsic or extrinsic, it doesn't really matter how it's perfectly defined, but it does require some level of experimentation and a willingness to try things to figure out what exactly feels right for a situation, your circumstance. So yeah, there's always going to be a little bit of difference for each person, but I think different strategies can work in different circumstances. Yeah. And I'll take it a step further. And we always hear like, you shouldn't care what other people think and, you know, don't do things because everybody thinks you should. And there's, there's a certain level where you need to be doing things that are right for you and not just because everyone else is doing it, but inherently saying that, oh, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks that goes against our nature as humans who want to fit in with a group. Well, I'm starting to find that a lot of things that sound simple on the surface, the actual truth of the matter is that both extremes are true. And the question is not if it's don't pay attention to people or always pay attention to people. The question is when. And so in some cases, yeah, it makes sense to go against the crowd, think for yourself, do what's best for you. But if you only do that, then you're not willing to get feedback. You become stubborn. You don't grow. There's a lot of the growth and learning that can happen from listening to other people. You can spot blind spots better if you get feedback from others. So you don't want to miss out on that either. So the question to ask is, when should I do this? Not if you should do it. And I think that's true for many different things. I would say that's true for like work-life balance. A lot of people think that having work-life balance means you know, just kind of doing everything at like 70%. But actually, I think it's the opposite. I think it's being very focused and obsessive about the work that you love and being 100% on that, but not all the time. And then you flip the switch and you be 100% focused on family and relaxation and, you know, giving yourself a break. So the question again is not if, but when. And, you know, that can take a lifetime to learn. And it's easy to say, but it's, it's much harder to practice. Yeah, with balance, I actually call it intentional imbalance, because then you are choosing to spend all your time going all in on something. And you're not trying to do this thing where you're on the pendulum. I think that's a great way to phrase it. That's a intentional imbalance at strategic moments and in the right way and focused in the right areas. That sounds much more fruitful to me in the long run. So let's talk about motion versus action. I was laughing whenever I was reading this part of the book, because I've been trying, like, I'm embarrassed to even say this, but I've been trying to write my own book for years. And, like, I get stuck in the motion, like, I got to do more research. I got to, like, read more about, like, how to write a book. Or, and I don't actually sit down and write the pages. And it's so easy to think that you're actually doing something when you're even researching for a book or researching how to train, researching how to change your diet. And then 
not actually ever doing anything about it. Yeah. The way that I think about it and, you know, I've dealt with all this stuff as well. And, um, it's kind of like motion is the pre-work and action is the actual work. Motion is related to the thing that you want to do. It's researching the book you want to write, or it's learning about how to write a best-selling book, or it's talking to other authors. But action is the thing that could actually deliver the outcome you want. It's writing sentences, it's revising paragraphs, it's you know working on the actual book manuscript itself. And the same thing is true for many other areas of life. You know, like it doesn't matter how many times you go to the gym and talk to a personal trainer. Talking to a personal trainer will never get you in shape. So that is motion. Whereas doing five squats, that's action because getting under the bar could actually deliver the result that you want. And it doesn't mean that research and preparation are never necessary. Like they can be very important things. But the problem is that planning often becomes its own form of procrastination. And when that is true, when you're in motion so much that you're not actually moving forward, you're stuck in motion, you're not taking action. You're uh, stuck in the research and planning phase. You're not actually delivering, uh, doing things that could get a result. So what I find is that, and again, this may differ depending on the person and the personality, but for me, I like researching and planning and kind of thinking through those things and strategizing. And so my bias is to be in motion. So I gotta, I'm always trying to remind myself to have this bias toward action, to try to focus on you know, moving faster, taking the next step, doing something meaningful that can actually deliver a result because motion feels good, but action actually delivers a result. And I actually think that's one reason why people often find themselves sliding into motion is that it feels like you're making progress so you can rationalize it and you can feel good, but actually you're just delaying the possibility of failure where we're trying to, it's the fear of failure that makes people avoid taking action. So you've told yourself for years that you want to start a business, but all you do is brainstorm business names and try to come up with business card designs and ask, talk to somebody about getting a logo made, which none of that stuff will ever deliver a paying customer. doesn't mean you don't need to do it at some point. It just means that's motion. It's not action. So the difference between those two can be a really meaningful gap. And as much as possible, I try to get myself to focus on taking action rather than sliding into motion. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we get stuck on having perfect action. Like if I just learn a little bit more about this and whenever I finally take action, I'll waste less time because now my action will be better. But you don't necessarily learn. I mean, you need to do the research, but you learn the most by actually doing the thing and failing your way right. to the top. And it's just so hard to and do that. That's sometimes. kind of an ironic thing. You know, like we tell ourselves, oh, I need to learn more. But actually, the way to learn more is to take action. And I think there's a little bit of a skill associated with that, too, which is that people often avoid taking action because failure seems too consequential. It seems too big and painful. And so if you can figure out a way to scale your trials down, to scale your experiments down so that you're not scared of failure anymore, then you can take action right away and you can learn from it. But your point is, is definitely spot on, which is that the best way to learn is not by reading or researching or theorizing about it. The best way to learn something is by actually doing that thing. And um, the faster you can get to that, the faster your learning will be. On your Twitter account, you asked lots of interesting questions of your audience, like pulling them for what they're doing or, or challenges that they're having. What's something that you're working on right now? So I get all kinds of interesting insights from Twitter. I'm trying to learn more about making good choices and decisions right now. I'm trying to learn more about what I guess I could call would be like 
high leverage strategy. So if you read Atomic Habits, I think a lot of people find it very useful, helpful for building better habits. But one of the questions that you could have at the end of it is, okay, I understand how to build better habits, but which habits should I build? Like, where should I focus? And that, I think, is a natural follow-up question and something I've been thinking about a lot recently and writing about more, which is how to focus your attention and energy and effort to, in the best area, how to, how to select the best habits out of the universe of options and make sure you're using your time in the highest and most effective way. And I think that if you can combine those two strategies, if you can make good choices and focus on high leverage, high energy, high output tasks, and you can build good habits so you can take action and be consistent with doing those things, that's a really potent combination and can, can really add up in the long run. So anyway, I've been thinking more about strategy and choices recently. Yeah, and I think that making decisions is something that is also difficult with how many options we have for careers these days, especially for younger people who are you know, in college or people who want a career change anytime in their life. And they could go in any single direction and they end up not making any decision because it's just too overwhelming to pick something. Yeah, it's interesting. For much of human history, information was scarce. And so finding information was like the discovery was the big thing that was helpful. Now, information is so abundant and so easily accessible that the skill is actually like filtering through the noise and figuring out what to focus on. And you're right. I mean, in many cases, whether it's information overload or just so many options that are available, it can feel paralyzing. So I think curation and editing and refinement and filtering, those are increasingly important skills. I think they're more important now than they had ever been before. And as information just continues to increase, as the volume increases, it's probably going to become even more important. My last question is about having a healthy relationship with social media. I know that writers tend to be more present on Twitter versus any other platform. And other people, more visual people are on Instagram. How do we create healthy habits around having a good relationship with social media and also how that impacts our decisions and our self-worth? Yeah, that's a big question. I don't know that I have all the answers to that. I'll just offer a couple kind of off the cuff ideas just thinking about my own social media use. I mean, first of all, these platforms can be your experience on them can be radically different depending on who you follow. In a sense, who you choose to follow, whether it's on Instagram or Twitter or wherever, is kind it's kind of like you get to build your own little world, you get to create your own city and you get to select who the citizens are going to be. And so I think it makes sense to be very careful, very methodical about who is going to live in your little city, who is going to be part of that information flow. And if you do a good job of curating who you're following, these platforms can be incredibly valuable. I mean, I, I've had to spend a lot of time. I'm, I mean, it's actually like it's probably dozens of hours, maybe even 100 hours that I've spent looking at different profiles. Who do other people follow? Who should I follow? Whatever. Like it's. It's a big time investment to really get it nailed uh, and dialed in. And for a lot of people, I don't know, it might not be worth that uh, for you. But you can sort of shortcut it. Like you can look at who I follow or you can look at who other people are that you like, who you follow, who they follow, and you can just follow all those people. And that'll kind of give you a, a quick way to do it. But if you do that well, if you get the feed curated to in a way that, such that the only posts you're seeing are ones that are really useful and serve you, then suddenly it becomes like a really positive insight dense information flow. And so for me now, when I log on to Twitter, I get a lot of great ideas from there. I find things to read. I, you know, come across interesting insights and it's only because I've spent all that time curating that information flow. So 
I think that's that's kind of the first big lesson is be careful about who you choose to put into your city. Be careful about who you choose to follow. And then there's a secondary thing, which is a lot of people just feel like they kind of check it too often. They check it mindlessly. I think what ends up happening is that the question you could ask yourself is, what do I do when I have nothing to do? So in other words, I'm waiting in line and I have seven minutes free. What do I do? A lot of people check Instagram. Or, you know, I'm sitting on the couch and the commercial break came on for the TV show I'm watching. I don't know. What do I do? I don't have anything to do for the next three minutes. A lot of people check their phone. And I think instead, what's what I would say, what I and what I try to do, but don't always do, I, I'm not perfect at this, but I try to have a, and I think you only need one thing, but you try to have one default action that is better. So for me, right now I'm working on my second book. And so the answer to what do I do when I have nothing to do is I start, I work on that book. Either I read something for it or I open up the manuscript and I start, you know, editing a paragraph or something. But the point is, whenever I'm bored, whenever I have downtime, that's the thing I go to. And I think that having something other than social media to be that default action, it can be very helpful because a lot of people feel like they spend too much time, but it's just because it's the thing they always do when they have nothing to do. So if you can substitute something more productive into that slot and you can be careful about who you follow and curate your feed... I think what you find is that social media becomes really fruitful and valuable and you don't spend too much time on it. So those are probably the two things that I've tried to do the most related to social. And speaking of when people want to follow you, where, where should they go to follow you? Well, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then Atomic Habits is probably the best thing to check out next. So you can just check out the book at atomichabits.com. And if you want to check out my other writing, that's all at jamesclear.com. If you click on articles, they're organized by topic, by category, so you can kind of browse around and see what's interesting to you. And um, if you like it, the best thing to do is probably to join the newsletter. So uh, jamesclear.com slash newsletter to sign up for that and uh, atomichabits.com to check out the book. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And it was such a treat to get to chat with you about all of these really important things. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. I hope that you enjoyed that podcast episode with James Clear. It was definitely worth a listen a second time. And to recap a few things I mentioned in the intro, the Galvanize Your Goals workshop that I'm hosting is on January 14th, and you can sign up for that at sonyalooney.com goals. If you want to work on your mental toughness as an athlete, I am offering the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy course, and you can also find that at sonyalooney.com. And many of these things I also publish in my weekly newsletter along with in articles on high performance and well-being. And you can get that at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. Okay. Thank you, friends. I really appreciate you. I'm so glad that you are here and part of this community for over 330 episodes. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week. 